Welcome to Rose Tinted, a podcast where we challenge the limits of our nostalgia by re-examining some of our favourite childhood movies. I'm Ollie Chip. And I'm Paddy HK. And today we will be discussing Big Mama's House. So, Ollie, how are you feeling about discussing this film today? All I can say is that I'm fucking glad we didn't decide to do this uh, on Sunday after I got back from that weekend wedding. I think I may have jumped out of the window. What a way to begin the millennium. I know. I've literally got that written in my notes. Like, this is the year 2000. Yeah. Like, halfway through the year of 2000. The year of our Lord, 2000 AD. <laughs> and we begin it with Big Mama's house. Excellent. <laughs> Um, well, before we jump into the discussion of Big Mama's house, I just need to give the uninitiated some background info about this podcast. So Ollie and I are old friends who decided to make a list of our favourite childhood movies so we can revisit them one by one to see if they still hold up to scrutiny. Some loose rules for our selection process, the movies have to bear some kind of significance to our childhood or early adolescence, and we try to only select movies that we have not watched since that time. So with that out of the way, Ollie, why don't you tell us a little bit about Big Mama's House? <laughs> so, Big Mama's House, like we've just mentioned, was released in June of 2000. So it's actually released at the peak of the turn of the century. So yeah. it's not even like the year starts off like this. This is the pinnacle of the year 2000 in terms of cinema. The year peaks with this. The year literally. Yeah. Really peaks with this movie. It's all downhill from here. But yeah, released in June of 2000 on a budget of 30 million. Made 174, mm. which is a pretty good turnover of profit, I think. It's got summer blockbuster written all over it, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you look at the director and the writer and what they've been credited with previously, uh, director, Home Alone 3, Never Been Kissed, then Big Mama's House, then Scooby-Doo, then Scooby-Doo 2, then Beverly Hills Chihuahua in 2008. <laughs> Uh, then Smurfs, Smurfs 2 and Smurfs The Lost Village. Actually, to be fair to him, he is the um, executive producer on Smurfs The Lost Village, not the director. What an oeuvre. Yeah, I know, right? What a CV that is. Yeah. Um, and then the, the writer has written things like Fish Police, Santa Claus 2, brilliant, Deck the Halls. He's actually written the entire Big Mama's trilogy. What a legend. I know, right? Can we just rewind for a second? I must know what Fish Police is. I need to know what <laughs> Fish Police is. At some point, can we do some digging and find out what exactly that is? Because that sounds uh, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Fish Police is an American animated television series produced by Hanna-Barbera and based on the comic book series of the same name. It aired on CBS in 1992, broadcasting three episodes before being axed for low ratings. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine the title is entirely self-explanatory. We don't need to delve into it anymore. Yeah, we're done. We're done. Okay, cool. Cool. I can't believe that A Big Mama's House has been released in 2011. Mm. That's embarrassing, man. Big Mama's House, like father, like son, 2011. Well, nostalgia sells, man. Nostalgia sells. Um, which is the whole point of this podcast, isn't it? We're trying to deconstruct that entire concept. Yeah, I know. Um, 
But yeah, it stars Martin Lawrence predominantly, who prior to this had obviously done Bad Boys in 1995, I think, 95, mm-hmm. 96, and also a film called uh, Blue Streak. One of my all-time faves. I mean, that's quite good, actually. Might be worthy of discussion, that one, at some point in the future. It's on the list, you know. Is it? That's the Martin Lawrence vehicle that I most associate with him. I think I watched that movie a lot as a kid, but again, haven't revisited it. So I'm v- after watching Big Mama's House, I'm very curious to see how Blue Streak holds up. I mean, he's been sort of typecast across those movies, particularly, isn't he, as sort of like a yeah. comic cop, I guess, like funny man cop. Yeah. Um, it's also got Paul Giamatti in it, who I actually think is maybe one of the only positive performances in the lot. Even that's a stretch. We'll talk about that. Um, do you want to hear my synopsis? Yes, please. In order to recapture a dangerous escaped convict and his blood money, FBI agent Malcolm Turner must go undercover. But it's no ordinary mission. Turner must disguise himself as someone close to the criminal's girlfriend, a sassy, larger-than-life grandma nicknamed Big Mama. But feelings can complicate things. Can Malcolm win over the girl and do his job? That is a very good back-of-the-box synopsis because (laughs) you've managed to summarise what the movie wants you to think it's about. Yeah. Like, because the movie wants you to think it's like this happy-go-lucky, good guy against all the odds kind of romp when really it's like abjectly cynical and horrible. Yeah. But again, we'll get into that. But yeah, I think that's a really good summary. Uh, So would you like to hear my one-line synopsis? Yes, please. Ha ha ha, isn't dressing up as a fat woman hilarious? (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Very, very good. If I had a one-sentence synopsis, it would be like, it's like kindergarten cop, but with... With more gaslighting. <laughs> that's my one line synopsis. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all the synopsis stuff out of the way. Why did Big Mama's House, starring Martin Lawrence, make the list for you, Paddy? Well, it's a bit of a funny one, because, as I mentioned earlier, Blue Streak was actually the vehicle that I most associated with Martin Lawrence, and that was the one that I re-watched the most as a kid. I really had a genuine love for that movie. Yeah. Um. So I think I saw Big Mama's House based off of my love for Blue Streak. I saw it a few times as a kid. I definitely enjoyed it. And I actually, (laughs) I'm sullying his name here, his good name, but I actually think this was a a favourite of my dad's and we used to watch it together. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was one of those movies that... Hold on though, but didn't you also say that about Big Daddy? Yeah, I just think anything with the word big followed by parent in it was probably (laughs) his back. (laughs) So yeah, we watched it a few times. I remember enjoying it. I remember very little of the movie going in. I remembered Martin Lawrence hiding in the real Big Mama's shower while she takes a shit and it goes on <laughs> yeah. for a long time. Comedy gold, mate. Oh yeah, absolutely. But um, I remembered the flashlight gag specifically. Yep. We'll get to that because I actually think that that's um, a linchpin of what's wrong with this movie. Uh, but yeah, at one point, Martin Lawrence as the Big Mama persona is in bed with Sherry, who is uh, the real Big Mama's granddaughter, and he gets an erection and she's like, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's just my flashlight. And it's just, yeah, all kinds of cringy. As a little side note before we continue, we should probably going forward choose to differentiate between Big Mama, i.e. the real Big Mama, Malcolm, i.e. Martin Lawrence's character, and Malcolm dressed as Big Mama. And here is my suggestion. So we'll have three names for these characters. We'll have Big Mama to represent the real Big Mama. Okay. We'll have Malcolm to represent Malcolm when he's presenting as himself. Yep. And we'll have Big Malcolm when he's in the Big Mama costume. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, all right. That sounds good. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's basically it for me. But what about you? Why did it make the list for you? Because um, it's a, a prime example of a weird genre of comedy movies in the late 90s well mid to late 90s and early 2000s which is like comic actor dressing up as overweight woman yeah so you've got like nutty professor haven't you mm. with um i was gonna say nutty professor with dr doolittle what's his name <laughs> eddie murphy um and also things like uh, mrs doubtfire with robin williams there's probably more examples but they're like white the top chicks three. white chi- yeah there you go see and i think it's a, a prime example of that genre i'm gonna call it a genre mm. what would the title of that genre be i'd say it's more of a trope than a genre no but i want it to be i want it to be a genre paddy that's what i'm asking you if it was a genre what would it be fat suit slapstick fat suit gender slapstick okay there we go something like that yeah. but we'll get into that because that is yeah essentially the foundation that this movie is built upon and yeah. for very obvious reasons it has not aged well i was speaking to adam about me watching this movie today and he was like in his in his in his cynical tone he was just like oh i bet that's aged well yes yeah exactly <laughs> in the in the year of our lord 2021 that particular the micro genre um, almost certainly has not aged well, no, but no, we will we will get into that. So, why did it make the list for you specifically? As in, what was your kind of personal history with the movie? I used to watch this a lot mm. back in the day, I, and I'm not really sure why because not much happens. Like, there's not mm. much joy in this film, if any. Mm. I just remember watching it a lot. Mm. Things I remember, I, I remember some of the music. Like, there's some hilarious 2000s R&B slash rap in the soundtrack, which I remember quite vividly. Um, specific moments. I remember, like, the face pe- like peeling off him and he has to use duct tape to keep his face on. And, you know, all the same shit that goes on in all these movies where he has to pretend to be two people in the same scene and it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just those sorts of things. But yeah, that's more or less my memories of it. It all came flooding back when I started watching it again, though, because nothing much happens, and it was easy to remember the stuff that happened mm. because there wasn't much of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and it is very bombastic, isn't it? It's the style of humour is is not very subtle, and so the memories do come screaming back because they are basically just being like shoved into your face. Yeah. Like, every set piece is just really loud and really just, like... Obnoxious. Obnoxious is a good word for it, yeah, and it's just like, oh yeah, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, obviously there is a lot to say about this movie, but why don't we start off by talking about some of the things we may have enjoyed or some of the things that we think are objectively effective in this movie. Okie dokie. Okay, Paddy, so... uh why don't you tell me what you enjoyed about this movie, inverted commas? <laughs> well, I actually kind of want to segue from something you just touched upon in our intro, uh, which is I actually want to talk about the soundtrack a bit. The soundtrack to this movie, admittedly, at points, it definitely bangs. And furthermore, I think it it's an interesting example of something that movies from this particular time period seem to do a lot, which is, um, I looked into it a bit, and it looks like most, if not all of the tracks featured in this movie were written and produced specifically for the film and that might not seem like that big a deal but from a modern perspective you look at the track list of the soundtrack and you've got artists like Nas like Missy Elliott like Destiny's Child Mm. writing tunes specifically for this movie and when you actually look back on that these are people who are now considered very influential within those genres and huge names for that era and that's a massive coup getting like names like that on board to write original material for a movie like this and I think this is really emblematic of the era 
era because I seem to remember with certain movies there was the release of an original song and music video that often coincided with the release of a film and the two would be used to cross promote each other um, especially within sort of like the hip hop and R&B genre so Men in Black was promoted using original mm. music by Will Smith obviously then you had 8 Mile with Eminem and then the most notable example for me was uh, Friday a movie called Friday which is sort of just like a stoner comedy from the mid 90s but that had original music from Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, Cypress Hill, Bootsy Collins. And I think that's something that the era did particularly well, is that cross-promotion of the movie and the music industry. And I don't think you see that a lot these days, not to the same extent, because I actually looked up the main theme tune to this movie. Yeah, it comes in at the end, right? Yeah, yeah, it comes in at the end. And I can't quite remember who the artist on it is, but when I watched the music video, it was literally just scenes from the movie uh, spliced into the music video and then actors from the movie actually taking roles in the music video. Right. So it's just this an interesting relic and an interesting example of this cross-pollination between the film and music industries. And I liked the tunes for the most part. I thought they were good. Well, I think I wouldn't be surprised if the artists that make these songs were contractually obligated to do it from the companies that they were signed mm. to and the labels. I imagine. I mean, this is what, 20th Century Fox? Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if they had fingers in the music industry pies as well, and it was probably part of the contracts of these artists. I'm assuming. I mean, would you actively want to make a song for a shit movie about a cross-dressing FBI agent? Well, it depends though, doesn't it? Because um, obviously people just respected Martin Lawrence. He was big at that time, yeah. if you think about it. He was huge. He was a huge comedian. It may well be that people just respected him enough that they wanted their music attached to this project. So whether or not they were contractually obligated to do it or not, I just think it was something that I had forgotten about. I'd forgotten how common it was for that to happen, you know, mm. for there to be this cross-promotion. And to be honest, to say that these are original songs that are written for this movie and not simply tunes that have been cherry-picked and shoehorned into the soundtrack. I think they're really effective and mm. I think they convey what the movie's trying to do really well. And yeah, I found myself nodding along to them quite a bit, so... The one I particularly like is the... I've got to have it... Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, as soon as I heard that, I was like, I know this tune. Yeah. It was an immediate familiarity. You know, I just figured it was just a tune from back then that was, you know, you ubiquitous and pervasive on the radio but like it is just this soundtrack which is really interesting um but what about you was there anything positive that you could identify in this movie um i think like the dynamic between paul giamatti's character whose name escapes me doesn't really matter if i can't remember mm. the name then it's obviously irrelevant and martin lawrence I think those two are passable comic actors and, and they do quite well. Yeah. In the scenes with them together, I quite liked them and they're quite effective. It might be the contrast in their characterizations, which I find quite endearing, I guess. I mean, I didn't really laugh at any point. There's some passable slapstick that they both perform. And yeah, their relationship as characters is relatively nice and believable, particularly compared to everyone else in the film who I think is, well, maybe with the exception of Big Mama, actually. But, mm. you know, the other characters are just really dry. Yeah. The little kid is dry. The the mum is just so dull. Mm, mm. Even the criminal, really. Like, I can't even remember his name either, but he just doesn't really do very much. No, but I do agree, though. I think the chemistry between Paul Giamatti and Martin Lawrence is pretty solid. And just to clarify to anyone who's not watched the movie, they're the two FBI agents, yeah. aren't they? So Martin Lawrence is the, I don't know, the prosthetics expert of the two who always dresses up to infiltrate the criminal underworld, I guess. And then Paul Giamatti's like his partner. And they do have pretty good chemistry. 
Um, I'll agree with you there. I didn't... I don't know. I found Martin Lawrence really obnoxious in this movie. When he was Big Malcolm, yeah. I got very irritated. Not not least because of the the very fact that the laughs are being derived from making jokes about fat people and about women and fat women particularly. Yeah. But just like everything about him, like his voice was irritating, his eyes yeah. and his facial expressions were irritating. I think at the start, when he's just normal cop man, um, he's all right. Well, that's what I mean, though. As soon as he started doing the big, uh, big mama impression, I was just like, I can't listen to this for the whole movie. Literally within <laughs> minutes, I was like, I cannot stick with this for this whole movie. So grating, isn't it? Oh, it's so grating. And um, I bring that up to say that he, in terms of comedic performances, him and Paul Giamatti weren't even the ones that stuck out for me. There was just a couple of the side characters and a couple of little moments that I enjoyed. So there's a scene where um, one of the tertiary female characters is giving birth. And I think the woman who's giving birth gives a good performance because her facial performance is really <laughs> yeah. funny. And she's like just doing all these contorted, like twisted, pained yeah. expressions. And I think she really commits to that scene. And I really enjoyed that. And I also, even though I found him quite grating, I liked the guy that played Nolan. The security guard. The overly zealous security guard. I'd say eight percent of the time he also really annoyed me but there was a couple of moments where he got me because he was just say what you want about him he was really committing to that performance yeah and he's his whole character is just like he's just a rubbish security guard who's desperate to get involved in like the fbi action and there was one moment the only moment that made me genuinely laugh out loud like belly laugh was when they're having a birthday party at the end for big malcolm who everyone thinks is big mama and then big mama turns up the real big mama turns up and then paul Giamatti takes Nolan to the side and goes, oh shit, Big Mama's here, Big Mama's here. And then without even blinking, he just goes, do you want me to take her out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that just came out of nowhere. And just like, I, I absolutely roared um, for one second. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I could take or leave most of the performances in this movie, like you said. Yeah, I mean, I'm clutching at straws when I say those two are passable. Yeah. I don't want to watch this movie again. And I didn't laugh once. So, yeah, I mean, it's just just objectively speaking, they were okay. Yeah. I think that's that's going to be a good back of the box little uh, pull quote there. <laughs> I also like the quote that you just gave there. Was it like, I found it 80% annoying? Yeah. I yeah, like that. Yeah. That's quite good as a quote on the box as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I'd, I'd ramp that up a little bit. I found that dude's performance 80% annoying, but I found the movie probably 98%. <laughs> yeah, fair play. So that was actually what I was going to ask you next was whether or not you had any genuine laugh out loud moments, but I suppose that's a no from you. That is a no from me. Yeah, I had two. Um, and if we're using the commode scale to define whether or not this is a comedy, what do you need? Seven genuine laughs for it to qualify as a comedy? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so using the commode system, this doesn't qualify as an effect comedy and I think I agree with that I had two laughs one of which was a fairly decent one and the others were just like chuckles yeah so was there anything else on your list that you enjoyed about this movie I thought that the direction of this movie and the just everything like cinematography editing was so run-of-the-mill and boilerplate that it was not even worthy of discussion apart from it seems that some of the creative freedoms were given to the production team in the scenes that have the criminal guy in them. Mm. They're filmed almost like a modern noir. There's lots of like low-key lighting and he's backlit against like urban landscapes and stuff. They were quite slick, those scenes. I quite liked those. Mm. And it's frustrating because the impression those scenes give of this criminal guy is that he's really, really dangerous and, and there's going to be a, you know... 
a conflict that's going to arise as a consequence of him because he's like hunting around, isn't he? He's like doing all of this sort of detective work himself. He's trying to find out where his money is and where his family is. Yeah, he's hunting Sherry, who's the love interest. Yeah, and he's like, all right, cool. He's getting somewhere. He's going to turn up and there's going to be a big old conflict that's going to arise from this really dangerous criminal. And it just peters out into fuck all at the end. And it's really irritating. But the, the scenes that he's in leading up to his ending are really good. I think, and they're really well filmed. Yeah. He's actually quite an effective villain. Like, he looks really psychotic, doesn't he? Yeah. There's that scene with the um, with the arms dealer, and the arms mm. dealer has a gun to his head saying it's 200 for the gun. He's like, I'm not paying you 200. Mm. You can have 100. And he's like, he's testing him, isn't he? He's like, go on, shoot me, shoot me. And he's just got this completely dead, behind-the-eyes facial expression. You're like, oh, this guy's pretty fucking sinister. Um, and then it all goes into nothing at the end. Well, the big conflict at the end, the big climax of that cat-and-mouse aspect of the story is when he turns up at the party at the end and he just gets kicked through a window <laughs> yeah it's literally like it's it, the big conflict between him and martin lawrence is just this like farcical slapstick fight so it's just completely <laughs> jarring with the tone that's been established you know alongside his character it is literally like he's been dropped out of another movie and i would say specifically he's been dropped out of kindergarten cop and it's really interesting because beat for beat if you compare these two movies they're basically the same movie just without the fat suit yeah because essentially what you have in kindergarten cop is you know arnold schwarzenegger pretending to be a preschool teacher to try and connect with the ex-girlfriend of a criminal who is trying to hunt her down for very similar reasons and then the way that criminal is presented in kindergarten cop is very similar he's very scary very sinister whenever he's on screen and the rest of the movie is quite light-hearted a lot of the time but when that climax happens to my memory they follow through on the threat and and uh, the movie ends in some pretty serious violence you know because he is a dangerous guy yeah i think like this points to one of like the problems with the structural elements of these types of movies and maybe we should just uh put a lid on them just for a moment and come back and talk about bad stuff because i think it sort of ties in with that okay yeah let's do that Okay, Ollie, so you mentioned some structural problems that tend to arise in movies like this. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so I was thinking this while I was watching, and, and it actually points to an issue that I think a lot of these bombastic slapstick type comedies have mm. especially those types of comedies that are set in a relatively realistic world the protagonists of these movies are often painted as just that bombastic slapstick comedy elements and then the villains are played completely straight and almost the exact opposite. Whereas I think movies like this would be far more effective and probably funny and interesting if they hammed up the villains in the same way they ham up the protagonists. So, you know, the villains are just as capable of buffoonery as the protagonists are. But I like you said, it's like you said, he's been dropped in from another movie, the criminal guy in this one, because it's so jarring that it becomes unentertaining, I suppose. I'd much rather see him as like a useless criminal going up against Martin Lawrence, who's a silly character than having Martin Lawrence drop kicking him through a window at the end in a fat suit. It just it, it's so jarring it doesn't really work for me. Yeah, I would agree with you, but I would differ from what you're saying in that I don't think 
having him be a genuinely sinister villain that's played straight conflicts with the rest of the movie. The conflict for me is when they just do a sudden heel turn and he goes from being a serious villain to a slapstick element in the movie. But there's no option. There's no choice in that matter, is there? That has to happen at the end because the slapstick hero has to win. So you have to... The serious villain at the end of these films has to become that very quickly. Whereas I think it would be more hilarious if they're both building up as stupid and and buffoons across across the narrative. Yeah, but I think it sort of depends on what you actually want out of the movie. Let's say the they establish this villain and this really sinister guy and when he suddenly turns up in the movie and and the two sort of like the slapstick comedy and this sinister criminal aspect of the movie suddenly collide, the tone of the comedy becomes more serious. I think it could potentially work and I'm once again going to point to Kindergarten Cop which I think does it much more effectively. It's able to balance that silliness, the humorous sort of fish out of water elements and then is able to resolve it on a more serious note once the actual severity of the situation becomes acknowledged. Mm. I would actually say it's it's a greater failing of this movie that it doesn't manage to pull that off uh, because I think it has been shown there have been movies in the past that have demonstrated that this can be executed way more effectively than it's done here. Oh, for sure. But like, I would be inclined to say that you might be getting closer to seven genuine laughs out of a comedy if the, if yeah. the villains were also painted as in the same sort of way. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yes, absolutely. Um, what about you? Have you got anything anything bad? Well, that's a stupid question. Uh, <laughs> what have you got on your list that is bad? <laughs> <laughs> well, many things, my friend. Uh, <laughs> you surprise me. <laughs> yes. Um, I think I want to start with just the fundamental premise, i.e. this idea of using male identifying people dressing as women and that being seen as inherently funny. Because it simply is the case that that has not aged well within the modern social consciousness. Mm. And I don't think just man is now woman is funny anymore. It just isn't funny anymore. So the movie immediately sets itself up for failure. One thing I would say is that the movie doesn't try to exploit gender stereotypes too much. I think it's sort of like, that's the premise for the movie, but it doesn't really go as hard with it as something like Mrs. Doubtfire does, you know? It's not half as offensive as I was expecting it to be, to be perfectly mm. honest. Maybe that actually does come under the good section. Not as offensive as I initially thought it would be. Well, I think the offensive elements of the film come from some more unexpected places. So yeah, the fundamental concept of man dresses as woman equals funny is offensive but they sort of just that's just used as like a jumping off point for the rest of the movie and they don't really prod at it too much but there are various aspects of the movie that are way way more offensive we interrupt our program to bring you this important message hey gang editing paddy here so i just wanted to pause the episode for a second and address the point we were just making we recorded this episode a while ago and in the time since then i've had some very illuminating conversations with some trans friends and relatives about these very issues so one of the main obstacles that trans people and particularly trans women face is that society has historically perceived them and therefore the issues they face as a joke as such there is often a propensity for people to dehumanize them and not take the very real threats to their existence seriously 
seriously. Obviously, movies like Big Mama's House and Mrs. Doubtfire came from an era that perpetuated that narrative in a lot of our minds. And although this movie doesn't maybe lean into it as much as it could have, it doesn't make it any less harmful in that regard. It is also worth pointing out that transphobic rhetoric often presents the false idea that trans women are actually just cis men who disguise themselves in order to infiltrate women's spaces and sexually assault them. As we will see, this is an issue that will become very relevant in our discussion of how Malcolm uses the Big Mama facade in just a second. But the harm that narrative threads such as these have caused the trans community over the years is regrettably not something we touched upon specifically. So again, I just wanted to use this moment to acknowledge the role that movies like Big Mama's House and Mrs. Doubtfire have played in perpetuating these harmful stereotypes. Transphobia is a hugely pervasive problem all over the world, and particularly in the UK, and I didn't want to feel like we were minimising the issue. As for our listeners, we welcome any and all insights to try and improve the level of empathy we use when criticising the movies we discuss. Please feel free to drop us a line at rosetintedmovies at gmail.com with any of your thoughts. Now back to the episode. Go on then, come on. So basically, I've got this in my notes as just the creep factor. So this is the main <laughs> thing yeah. that I really don't like about this movie. I had a bunch of other stuff, you know, there's a bunch of throwaway lines that are either homophobic or fat shaming. And there's just generally loads of unfunny jokes, like generally unfunny one-liners. Yeah. But the main bugbear I have with this movie is the creep factor. So this is, without a doubt, for a movie that's meant to be a comedy, this is one of the most deeply... Sinister. Yeah, sinister and unsettling movie experiences that I've had in a long time. And here's why. This is the short version. So Malcolm basically completely manipulates and gaslights Sherry into forming a romantic attachment with her. Yep. Through his adoption of the Big Mama persona, he exploits, you know, Sherry's love, trust, and respect for her grandma in order to maneuver himself into a position where he can share moments of intimacy with her and eventually form a more serious romantic relationship. And I just want to pause for a second and I just want to talk about gaslighting because gaslighting is a term that's risen to prominence within the modern consciousness fairly recently, I would say. And as a term, it gets used a lot and I think it actually gets misattributed a lot of the time. People will often substitute the word, I'm, and I'm not trying to downplay the severity of gaslighting, it is a very serious form of manipulation and emotional abuse, but it often gets substituted within critical narratives for lying. So people will often refer to lying as gaslighting, and yeah. gaslighting is inherently dishonest, but it is a step further than simply lying. So what would you say is your, yeah, your definition of it? Yeah, so just like a ballpark definition of gaslighting, it refers to a specific type of manipulation where the manipulator is trying to get someone else to question their own reality, memory, or perceptions of reality. Mm -hmm. And that is quite literally what Malcolm does all the way through this movie. Um, to Sherry, and he, and, and he starts off doing it in order to fulfill a deeply unethical law enforcement aim, right? <laughs> yeah. So, he, he, like, I don't even know if what he's doing is legal, but, like, yeah, it's, it's definitely unethical. But then when the romantic elements get entered into the scenario, it just becomes so much more problematic. Yeah. Like, he literally is dressed as her grandma and is like, you can talk to me. I'm your big mama. You can confide in me. You can trust me. And then he takes it a step further because this is big 
Big Malcolm talking to her. He's talking to her dressed as Big Mama. But then he introduces himself to her as Malcolm. Yep. And that's where he tries to maneuver himself into a romantic relationship with her. It goes one step further than that as well, doesn't it? So he, to be fair, to be fair to the movie, he doesn't intend to introduce himself as himself to Sherry. Like, that's a mistake, isn't it? He falls out of the window and loses his loses his Big Mama suit. So he has to pretend that he's like a electrician or some shit, whatever. Yeah. So to be fair, it doesn't start off as a deliberate ploy to manipulate her. However, after introducing him to her as himself, this is so confusing, he then dresses back up as Big Mama mm. and then starts saying to Sherry that he's a good guy <laughs> yeah. and that you can do like you should you should go for it because he'll do good for you. And I was just thinking, hold on a second, like that is so dark. He's like bigging himself up to her yeah. and he's like, oh, if I was 30 years younger, I'd be on him in a second. Yeah. But also, even before he introduces himself as Malcolm to her, he's already using the Big Mama costume to creep on Sherry and yeah. leer at Sherry and pretend he's doing <laughs> other things. It is just so bad. But then, to take what you just said a step further, because it goes into wildly dark territory. Because basically, so Sherry loves Big Mama, right? And then it's established that there's some kind of attraction between her and Malcolm. So she loves and she trusts Big Mama and she's attracted to Malcolm. But she kind of intuitively knows that there's a connection between them because yeah. at one point she recognises Malcolm's eyes. Yeah. She's like, your eyes look so familiar because obviously she's been watching him dressed as her grandma the entire time. <laughs> and also because they're the same person, they share the same sense of humour and they both make her laugh. So this introduces this weird, like almost incestual element to their connection. And it was literally, it just made my skin crawl. And it all culminated. <laughs> in the scene that I mentioned earlier which is the flashlight scene you yeah. know, which is basically Sherry crawls into bed with Big Malcolm and he gets an erection and it's played for laughs in this sort of like oh it's just a flashlight and then she's like oh do you have another flashlight under there and blah 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 and like here's the thing this whole situation from the beginning is completely unethical but if he even had an ethical bone in his body as soon as he realised that he was able to trade this persona for moments of physical intimacy with this woman because of the fact that she trusted who she believed him to be yeah. like he should have just stepped back fucking right but at a certain point in the movie he's uh, becomes aware that he's able to trade this persona for physical intimacy with her and he leans into it hard and you know do you know what's bad about that as well is that he makes the audience complicit in that behavior because mm. in that flashlight scene the setup is she gets into bed because there's a thunderstorm and she's scared there's basically spooning right and she's like oh what's that i can feel blah 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 and he's like oh it's my flashlight and you think oh ha ha he's making he's bullshitting it's actually his erect penis and then he actually pulls out a flashlight and you're like oh that's funny and then they have another heartfelt conversation for a little while and then she's like oh is there another flashlight down there and then he looks directly into the camera right with this with this sort of knowing wide-eyed grin then lightning strikes outside and thunder and thunderclaps so this horrible sinister gothic tone to it and in that split second 
that fourth wall breaking split second, we are then complicit in the whole saga. Yeah, in the manipulation. Yeah, to that point, we have been onlookers in this sort of disgraceful, immoral sort of turn of events. Mm. But at that moment in time, he brings us into the fold and we become complicit in it. And that at that point, I was like, fuck this. I want out yeah. of here. This is horrible. Yeah, and it's like, it's from the very second they first interact, he immediately starts gaslighting her. And I just want to take you back to that definition of gaslighting where it's like you force the person to question their own reality or memory or perceptions yeah and this first second he sees her like she turns up at the house big malcolm comes out in the costume and the first thing he says he just goes oh look at that ass yeah and then she's like excuse me and he's like oh i meant asthma and it's like this he tries to play it off and he's like remember how you used to have (laughs) asthma as a kid do you remember that and she's like oh I guess I remember that. And he's like, no, you definitely had asthma as a kid. And that's what I'm referring to. And he just like labors this joke. And it's just little moments like that, that, that sums up all of their interactions Yeah, is him basically being like, Ooh, I remember when you used to do this. And Ooh, I remember when you used to do that. And he's planting these memories in her mind to make her feel safe with him. And if that doesn't as, as well, if that doesn't count as coercion yeah. from in a court of law, cause like he keeps trying to get her to confess crimes. Yeah. And like if that isn't coercion, I don't know what is like th- there is no legal, legal grounds for this to be okay at all. Yeah. And at one point in the movie, he realizes that, the big mama facade isn't the key to getting her to confess. He's like, the key is Malcolm. She has to trust me in a romantic way in order to confess. So at one point in the movie, he acknowledges that the big mama persona and the big mama facade is no longer necessary to do what he's trying to do, but he still continues the charade as big mama because it enables him to manipulate her trust (laughs) even more. It is absolutely... fucking bonkers there's also like this horrible moment uh, i think it's the worst scene in the movie actually no it's in the top three worst scenes of the movie but it's the fishing sequence which is like this this romantic bit where malcolm takes them out fishing he says he's again completely making bullshit up saying that he's very good at fishing and he's clearly yeah. shocking at fishing like he's just a chronic liar yeah yeah from start to finish in this film but yeah he goes out on the lake and they have this romantic thing sherry and himself and, and then the, the little kids there as well and it's this sort of strange fucked up like i'm your new dad situation that's going on <laughs> yeah. and like yeah. the little kid's trying to catch fireflies or something or lightning bugs, I think they call them, don't they, in the States? And he's, like, jumping around trying to catch them, and Malcolm's like, no, I can show you how to do it. And he says something along the lines of, like, sometimes if you put lots of energy in, you end up pushing people away. Sometimes you just need to wait, and they will come to you. And while he's doing that, he traps a firefly in this jar, and yeah. I was like, that's exactly what you're fucking doing with this uh, with yeah. this woman, mate. Like a predator, like a crocodile with its <laughs> yeah. jaws open. Yeah, if you just set the trap, they will come yeah. to you. And it was so dark, it was so dark. And all of this, all of this culminates at the end of the movie where she becomes aware of his manipulation. So the disguise gets torn off during his scuffle with the villain at the end. Yeah. And so this is what happens, basically. She calls him out on his bullshit, right? She's just like, you've been lying to me. You've been manipulating me. How dare you? How can I ever trust you, right? On a surface level, you might be tempted to applaud the movie for going, oh, they're calling him out. Mm. Clearly, this, this is bad behavior and he's being called out for it. But I actually think if anything, this acknowledgement of the behavior makes it even worse and makes the movie even more reprehensible because he gets called out, which signifies to the audience that the movie knows that his behavior is toxic. The movie knows that his behavior is bad 
and that it's problematic. But then at the end, it just gets swept under the rug and he's able to win her affection back again. The reason it's swept under the rug as well is because, or the reason he can get away with the behavior is because he's justifying it by saying that he was just doing his job and that he was catching a notorious sort of bank robber slash murderer. Like, yeah. he justifies his criminal actions by saying that he was trying to reprimand another criminal. Well, I actually think it's even more disgusting than that because yes, you're right. That is one of the excuses that he uses. But by the end, so the end scene, the big climax of the movie. For me, this end scene is the worst scene in the film. Yes, because this actually really solidifies how deeply, deeply troubling the messaging around um, romantic relationships and gaslighting and things like that in the movie is. So at the end scene, they're all in church, you know. <laughs> just pause for a second. Let's just stew on that for a minute. They're all in <laughs> church at the end. Yeah. Oh yeah, his manipulation peaks in the house of our Lord. <laughs> On his birthday, no less. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> They're in church. And so Sherry's there, her son's there, big mama, the real big mama's there. And so Malcolm turns up and he does this big proclamation where he says things like, yeah, the costume was fake, but my feelings were real. Uh, and then she ends up, you know, taking him back. And basically, if you think about this structurally, this just mirrors a textbook like abusive relationship. It is the structure of an abusive relationship because he manipulates her, gaslights her, misleads her, abuses her trust. He gets found out and then he wins her back by saying basically the equivalent of, I only did it because I loved you yeah. and you know, my intentions were pure or whatever. And rinse, repeat, that is how a lot of abusive relationships work. You have yeah. the abuse and then the victim threatens to break off the relationship and then the abuser justifies their behavior and tries to rectify things by implementing some kind of grand gesture. Yeah. That is how these things work. And so what this movie is doing is it is presenting you with a textbook abusive narrative in a way that is aspirational. It shows this relationship as an aspirational romantic relationship yeah. because she takes him back at the end. And even like the real big mom is like, go on, go get your man, you know? And that's, re that's really upsetting as well because like obviously she's like painted as this no nonsense, doesn't take any shit grandma. Yeah. And at the end, like she eats basically an entire bucket of shit in the church and just laps it up like it's going yeah, out of fashion yeah. and it's really annoying because you're like oh come on someone needs to call bullshit on this guy like it's fucking ridiculous exactly and it and it just frames that behavior as okay yeah it's ends justifying the means isn't it yeah i was a horrible immoral criminal for 85 minutes but in the last five here's why i did it therefore it's all justified can you kiss me now in front of the eyes of god thank you i know i know I basically subjected you to behavior which would probably leave you with lasting trauma for decades of your life. I know that I manipulated you and I know that I traumatized you, but the fact is I just really, really wanted to have sex with you. And you've got a nice ass, yeah. Yeah, basically, which he again comments on all the time throughout the movie. It is wild. So yeah, I have other things that I didn't like in the movie generally, but fundamentally that's the main issue yeah. that I had. Did you have anything else really noteworthy that you wanted to talk about? Um, the main thing that I thought was bad about this movie is its structure and its writing. Mm. So for me, mm. it just felt like they came up with the situations for putting Martin Lawrence in a fat suit first mm. and then structured a film around those moments. Yeah. So to me, it feels like a series of sketches that have an overweight person as the center of the sketch that are then thinly strung together with 
a thread of narrative connection. So it's sort of like, you know, we have cooking breakfast and he doesn't know how to cook it. That's funny. Yeah. Then we have next scene. Oh, let's get Martin Lawrence playing basketball um, because that's funny. Oh, let's have Martin Lawrence doing a self-defense class. That's funny. Mm. And just rinse, repeat that formula. And it's just, it's not funny. No. Like none of it is funny. And yeah, I think that's a lot down to this structure where the actual narrative of the film is a massive afterthought. It's just these small set pieces that they're interested in presenting. Yeah, I, I would fully agree with you. And just speaking on just generally lazy writing, I think that basically the fundamental premise of the movie is very hard to buy into. Yeah. Like the whole idea that Sherry believes that Malcolm is her grandma is wildly <laughs> unbelievable. And they kind of dis- Dismiss it as, you know, oh, she's not seen her in since she was a child. And, you know, and they sort of acknowledge it. They're like, oh, you look different. You look kind of strange. And, you know, you don't look like how I remember you. But then her friends, who the real big mama had been shown hanging out with not two days prior to this, like they see Martin Lawrence in the big mama outfit. They don't even question it. They don't even question it for a second. And then at the end of the movie, you've got the whole neighborhood who, you know, as far as I can tell, revere this woman. Yeah. And they don't even know that it's... It's Martin Lawrence in like a poorly constructed fat suit because they show you them making the fat suit and it's literally like what a lampshade and some pillows and like, <laughs> yeah. and then like it's like yeah it's the equivalent of like it's equivalent of like Martin Lawrence is shoving a pillow up his jumper and walking around there saying that he's Big Mama yeah yeah it's yeah, completely yeah. ludicrous but I also like the fact that you know the sequence with the birth that you alluded to earlier yeah. it's like they say but Big Mama you're the I don't know village midwife or whatever the fuck <laughs> right and then they get her into the room and the you would think that those characters have probably seen Big Mama yeah. deliver a baby before if she's a midwife yeah. in the town. They're like, yeah, you're the midwife. Let's go and get her. You would start asking questions when a fucking plunger comes out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, is it yeah, Crisco? Absolutely. Like fucking oil? It's complete and utter lunacy. Well, it is just one of those movies where for the central premise to work, every other character in the movie has to be dumb as shit. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, literally, he should have just turned up, Big Malcolm should have just turned up in his suit doing his terrible impersonation of what he perceives an effeminate voice to be. Yeah. And they should have just, this would have been an infinitely better movie if it was seven minutes long (laughs) and someone just said, who are you and what have you done with Big Malcolm? And they chased him out of town with pitchforks. That would have been... I would have loved that movie. Yeah. I think that would have been excellent. Um, but, like, I feel like we're starting to touch upon the things that we'd like to change about this movie. So, unless you have anything else to add, shall we move on to changes? Yeah, like I said, I think we've discussed the most important points. I think we can probably move on. Sherry! Sherry, that's you? Oh, what a beautiful surprise! Yeah, big mama, I just wanted to come and... Say goodbye because we have to leave now. Oh, but you just got, I just got, I don't want you to leave. All right, Ollie, so what would you change to improve this movie? (laughs) (laughs) So much. Um, But I think let's adopt the position of like a third draft writing team. Mm. We can't change it fundamentally, but we can try and adapt it and make it a little bit more coherent. Mm. The simple answer to a lot of these things of what you would change is don't make the fucking thing in the first place. But that's just not, that's pointless. Um, So I think like the main thing I would probably change is not having his 
uh, disguise as an overweight grandma. Yeah. I think that would solve a lot of issues. He could just, like, I don't know, be the gardener. Yeah. And just be himself, you know, and yeah. work his way in that way. Yeah, um, yeah. Just don't have, you just wouldn't have Big Mama going out of town. Mm. You could have, for example, uh, a setup where Malcolm moves to the town and he's like, right. Yeah. Sherry's going to go and see her grandma that she loves. It's the only safe place. We've got that intel. We know she's going there. Therefore, I'm going to go there a few days early and I'm going to become the gardener for Big Mama. Mm. There's going to be loads of funny, comedic little scenes where I'm trying to win over Big Mama, who's like, I don't need a gardener. I don't need you to fix my house, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, honestly, you do. And you could have some funny sort of interactions between the real Big Mama and Malcolm. Mm. So he's then embedded himself as the actual sort of handyman slash gardener mm. for Big Mama by the time Sherry turns up and then he can start doing the same thing with Sherry as well. So you have the yeah. start of the movie being Malcolm trying to win Big Mama over and then the second part of the movie is him insidiously planting um, and gaslighting Sherry. Yeah, exactly. And to take what you're saying a step further, yeah, I agree that would be the way to approach this. And then what you could introduce is like a, let's say, let's just throw the idea of this being a comedy out of the window. Maybe you've got, you could <laughs> say it's maybe a dark comedy. You know, let's okay. say it's a dark comedy. And like you say, the first half of the movie is him uh, gaining the trust of Big Mama, gaining the trust of Sherry, uh, Sherry and the whole time the movie's being interspersed with these shots of the villain who she's trying to escape as it normally is right yeah what the movie then becomes towards the end is like this moral dilemma where do the ends justify the means he gets so invested in catching this criminal but along the way becomes romantically attached to Sherry that the movie has the opportunity to do like a bit of a switcheroo where suddenly the protagonist who you've been sort of rooting for throughout the movie or who you've been following throughout the movie suddenly his morals become questioned and he's painted to be a little bit villainous himself yeah and it sort of becomes this fable about do the ends justify the means and you know he who fights monsters should see to it that he himself does not become a monster kind of thing mm -hmm. that's how i would play it so do away with the whole costume thing which obviously does away with the fundamental premise of what this movie is and have it be more of a black comedy or a drama where through trying to catch this criminal and through manipulating these innocent people, the protagonist is slowly painted to be a villain by the end of the movie anyway. Yeah. Okay, so I guess there is just one final question for you, Ollie. Yes. Do you think you need rose-tinted glasses to appreciate this movie, or do you think it holds up on its own merit? Yes, you need rose-tinted glasses. Next question, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Well... I agree, you do need rose-tinted glasses to appreciate this movie. In summary, the whole movie, the backbone of the movie is essentially very problematic, transphobic, fat-shaming, homophobic, sexist humour. And I don't even know if it was ever funny, but if it was ever funny, it could have only been funny in an era where people were genuinely oblivious to those kind of issues yeah. and how they are presented in media. It is really so of its time, it hurts. And I think I don't hold what people enjoy against them in any way. I know you and I differ in that sense, but like I'm genuinely <laughs> of the opinion, if you like a movie for whatever reason, that is totally fine. But I struggle to imagine how you could watch this movie from a modern perspective without rose-tinted glasses on and still get the same level of enjoyment out of it. Yeah, it's the Big Daddy effect, isn't it, really? like, we, yeah. I think we discussed this, but Big Daddy is like... It is so offensive on so many levels that it almost becomes farcical trying to unpack enjoyment out of it. Yeah. I was also just 
caveat it as well with this film. I mean, it is overt, but like it's it's still irritatingly subtle enough for some people to be like, oh yeah, but it is a bit funny. Like it is yeah, a bit fun. Yeah. Like there are some comedy moments because it's not like fucking Birth of a Nation. Yeah. It's much more subtle. Yeah. The worst thing that movies like this ever did was convincing the world that they were harmless. Yeah, exactly. And they're not because they do genuinely proliferate some pretty um, harmful ideas. Yeah. And I actually think maybe there's an equation in this because like I said, this was a very unsettling movie experience. I think Big Daddy was equally unsettling in many regards. (laughs) So does comedy plus time equal horror because i know that i know that people say tragedy plus time equals comedy so does comedy plus time equal horror or does comedy plus time equal tragedy yeah are they two sides of the same coin we've blown this whole thing wide open oh god um yeah we need to end this yeah we've looked that i've had a peek behind the curtain and i don't like what's behind it no no absolutely um Let's leave it there then. But before we go, I just need to say thank you to Dilettante for letting us use their song My Dress as our theme tune. But yes, I have been Paddy. And I've been Ollie. And we have been Rose Tinted. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you all next time. Before you go, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. Remember, you can also follow us on Instagram at Rose Tinted Movies. Thanks again for listening.